Welcome to the fifth supplemental lecture of the semester. Today we're going to discuss intercultural business communication. This will be one of the shorter supplemental lectures of the semester. So let's go ahead and get this kicked off. First, talking about what you'll see this week in class. Now, again, if you're watching or listening to this towards the end of the class week, a lot of this will become apparent to you already, but Tuesday in class, we'll discuss intercultural communication. We'll discuss what that means as far as organizational communication is concerned. I think a lot of us talk about cultures and the like, and this is something we'll mention. They transcend just regional cultures. So really what we're talking about is organizational culture and how that affects our method of communicating between those organizational cultures. We'll also do quiz number two in class on Tuesday, February 13th. And again, if you haven't checked the study guide out for that, it is on D2L. Thursday, February 15th, there will be an initial discussion post due at 11.59 p.m. And then on Sunday, February 18th, your discussion board response will be due also via D2L, also at 11.59 p.m. So you've got the quiz and you've got the set of discussion board posts this week. That is all no topic check at the end of this week to keep in mind. Just touching on a few things from the in-class lecture. So something that we will talk about in class on Tuesday is that culture can mean a geographic culture or a demographic culture, which is often how we think about it. If you mention just in conversation to someone about culture, that's what they're going to think about first and foremost. But as far as organizational communication is concerned, we're far more concerned about the organizational culture of things. This is something that businesses and organizations of all types talk about until they are blue in the face. Now, cultural differences could include maybe space or physical touch dynamics as they pertain to communication, but organizational cultures actively differentiate through a number of different aspects, through onboarding, through traditions, through values, through artifacts through any of those solutions. So that's something, again, that we will talk about in class on Tuesday. So let's get to the actual supplemental lecture content here. And the first thing to note is what to do when you're communicating across cultures. Now, as the book mentions, experience is the best practice. I truly think that it's a best practice for people to interact with cultures outside of their own, whether that be organizational, whether that be regional, whatever. But I will also be the first to tell you that it would be impossible to experience all cultures. And this is particularly the case in a business context. Imagine you're a regional salesperson for a particular business and you're selling B2B products or business-to-business -business products to other businesses, and you might do visits to 20 businesses in a week. It's impossible to experience all of those cultures for all 20 of those businesses before you go and visit them. But some things we can keep in mind to help us with these intercultural relations is that avoiding assumptions is a positive, even though we have to make certain assumptions. Avoiding them as far as the culture of the organization is a positive. Avoiding stereotypes as well, and this goes beyond organizations. Talk about regional stereotypes or racially related stereotypes or sex related stereotypes, any one of those things. Effective intercultural communication talks about 
peeling back layers on an interpersonal level. And this is what it comes down to when we talk about communicating across cultures. Ultimately, the individual should be first and foremost there. Rather than seeing the individual as maybe a product of their culture, we should see the individual rather as just that, an individual whose culture might add or subtract from their own personality and their own ways of doing business. Uh, their culture might inform how they conduct themselves on a day-to-day -day basis, but ultimately it goes back to what we talked about with social penetration theory in last week's supplemental lecture, where we're trying to peel back layers on an interpersonal level. Getting to know others is the best way to communicate across cultures. And that's something that the anthropologist Edward Hall mentioned. You know, Edward Hall is sometimes mentioned as kind of the forefather of modern day cultural, cultural anthropology. Whether or not you believe that, I think you're better off asking a cultural anthropologist for input on that. But he contributed a lot of different things that inform the way we look at intercultural communication. And among his main guidelines, whenever he would go and study a particular culture or a particular place, he would do these four things. He would focus on interactions with others versus general observations of a culture. And this, again, is where that peeling back layers comes into place. When you start that process of disclosing, self-disclosing, and getting others to self-disclose, you learn a lot more about them and maybe even the culture that's informed their personality and such, then you would learn just by simply sitting on a park bench and watching how a culture conducts themselves. One also doesn't have to know everything to know something. We can make small observations about a culture. We may not be able to extrapolate what those mean on a larger macro level, simply because we're not all that familiar with the culture, but if we know one thing, that's okay. If we know something, we don't have to know everything, ultimately. The third thing Hall mentioned was learning a community's rules. You want to do this both generally and for interactions. If uh, there is a corporate culture, as an example, that is a bit more buttoned up or a bit more casual, you want to know that going in, especially if you're going in for a job interview so that you're not under or overdressed. This is also the case for interactions too. As we'll talk about in a second, there's high and low power distance cultures. So you need to figure out kind of whether it's okay to address others by a certain name or address others by a certain address, in fact. So there are certain corporations out there where you're supposed to address others by Mr. or Mrs. and then their last name. There are some just go by their first name. So ultimately, learning a community's rules is also beneficial. And then the final thing that Edward Hall said, well, of many things, emphasize the individual. Again, this goes back to getting to know individuals as you study a given culture. Again, individuals aren't necessarily equal to the culture. The culture simply informs how an individual might act or expect you to act or carry themselves but also they're bringing everything of themselves into that interaction too. And if you take an individual, they may be a product of an organizational culture, but they're also a product of a familial culture, of a regional culture, of these microcultures and co-cultures, and all of the things we'll talk about in class on Tuesday. So it's important to respect and emphasize the individual as you're communicating across cultures. Let's talk about cultural differences across organizations because this is, after all, organizational communication. 
One of the first differentiations we can make between cultures is individualistic cultures and collectivist cultures. Now, these four things that I'm going to talk about over the next couple of slides, there's a guy, Geert Hofstede, who studied IBM data and came up with actually six different differentiations across organizational cultures. We'll talk about four of them here. And I want you to think about these things as a continuum. Once again, as so many things in communication are, you can think about them as a spectrum or what have you, but it's not an either or proposition. Most organizations end up maybe leaning towards one side of the spectrum or the other, but it's not an either-or proposition here. So individualistic cultures place emphasis on self-reliance, and they also have a large perception of the world through their own viewpoint. So these types of cultures are oftentimes high-stress cultures from an organizational perspective. Again, expecting self-reliance might not be smiled upon to ask questions or get help from other people. You're supposed to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. As far as regional cultures are concerned, individualistic cultures kind of align with what a lot of people see the United States is doing. Whereas you also have collectivist cultures at the other end of the spectrum. They place emphasis on the needs of the community and the group and they have a perception of the world through that group's viewpoint. So collectivist cultures, there's more likely to be maybe some cross-pollination here and there as far as help is concerned. The negative to that, because we did mention some negatives for individualistic cultures, the negative side to collectivist cultures is you might rely too much on other people and you might be too selfless and therefore within an organizational point of view, that might actually keep you from moving on or up within the organization. Then you have explicit rule cultures versus implicit rule cultures. Explicit rule cultures are cultures in which rules and power structures are clearly defined and information is explicit in nature. In the video that we'll watch in class on Tuesday, we'll watch an old McDonald's training video. And they mention, hey, we want our employees to ad lib a little bit when they're discussing things with customers, but we have a lot of rules and guidelines for how things are made, how things are conducted, the cleanliness of a given restaurant. McDonald's is going to lean far more towards an explicit rule culture. Implicit rule cultures, rules and power structures are kind of non-verbally indicated. You're supposed to know, but you might have to ask questions there. And worse, guidelines may not be explicit in nature. Now, I say worse because in certain circumstances, we just want to know what it is we're supposed to do and how it is we're supposed to do it. But implicit rule cultures work very, very well when you've got an experienced uh, workforce, organization, you've got people that know how they're, what they're going to do, they know already how they're going to do it, and they've got that experience to lean back on. These type of cultures might not work all that well for, say, entry-level employees. If you've ever started a job and didn't really know what to do or how to do it when you first started, implicit rule cultures might be perceived as a bad thing because you're just kind of wandering in the wilderness for a little bit. So there are pluses and minuses to both of those. Just like with explicit rule cultures, if the rules are explicit and you're supposed to follow them explicitly, doesn't leave a lot of gray area. And as we know, the world oftentimes isn't black and white. So it can even impact problem solving negatively. Other cultural differences include uncertainty rejecting cultures versus uncertainty accepting cultures. Now, we mentioned when we were talking about social penetration theory, the whole reason we try to get to know people, know organizations, all of that, 
is so that we know what to expect. We like certainty, we don't like uncertainty, typically. These uncertainty-rejecting cultures, these are cultures that are reluctant to change or take risks, and it's important to ask a lot of questions to reduce the uncertainty. Cultures in an organizational context that might be uncertainty-rejecting would include cultures around insurance or banking or the medical field. A lot of times you see that reluctance to take risks. Part of that is because of stakeholders in the case of a bank. Part of that is because lives are at stake in the case of a hospital. And so it's important to remove as much uncertainty as possible. Now, uncertainty accepting cultures are willing to change or take risks. They might be hesitant to ask questions, which could be a bad thing, but also these type of cultures are typically a little bit more mobile. They're typically a little bit more agile. You see uncertainty accepting cultures a lot more with startups, especially like those prototypical tech startups or Silicon Valley startups. They're accepting of that uncertainty. They don't need to know the answer to every question. It's just, hey, let's go for it. Let's uh, attempt something. So the benefit of it is that there's a much higher ceiling sometimes to uncertainty accepting cultures. The problem is the floor is a lot lower for these types of cultures. And if you take risks with things like other people's lives, it's not good in the long run if you're something like a hospital. And then finally, we have low power versus high power distance cultures. Low power distance cultures are closer to a flat organizational structure. Some of these might include a holacracy or something called teal, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, but basically members see each other as equals and it's okay to question authority. Now, maybe it's not okay to question authority in such a deliberate fashion that you're insulting them, but ultimately it's okay to question maybe a decision that's made or just to ask why, why has a decision been made? High power distance cultures are cultures where there is an explicit power structure in place and questions of superiors are generally discouraged unless it's a matter of clarification, how do I do a job or something along those lines. Questions of decisions certainly are discouraged in high power distance cultures. Now, I think we're familiar with these type of concepts in an organizational context, but I oftentimes tell people, you know, oftentimes families are high power distance cultures, especially families with young children. How often did we hear when we were young children or how often have we heard other parents tell kids because I told you so? That would be an example of a high power distance culture, not accepting that questioning, not maybe taking the time to explain the thought process behind it and just saying, hey, do this because it's what I told you to do. There's really no latitude for talking back. There's really no latitude for questioning a given decision within the household. Finally, as far as content is concerned, I want to talk very briefly about acculturation. And this is the transition to living in another country, another region, or among another cultural group. And we see a lot of this in terms of maybe travel. If we travel for organizations or business, you get a little bit of that acculturation in terms of regions. But I want to look at acculturation through an organizational lens. The general process of acculturation is typically a four-step thing. There's initial anxiety or elation, and then that culture shock. You kind of wander around, don't really know what you're doing. This happens during the onboarding stage when we first start a job. Onboarding is also something that we'll talk about here in the coming weeks. So when we first start a job, there's maybe elation, there's some initial anxiety or apprehension, 
And maybe if the culture is radically different, there's that culture shock there. The second stage is adjustment and acceptance. You start to learn the rules, the mores of the organization, so to speak, and we accept our role within that organization. And then if we ever have to leave an organization or if we're leaving to a different group, we either get anxiety over having to return or leave or elation. If we really don't like a particular job and we're looking at getting out of the job, then it becomes like the light at the end of the tunnel. And then there's what's called re-entry shock or reintegration. This happens more in terms of regional acculturation, but it definitely happens within organizations as well as you integrate into other organizations or reintegrate into what life is like without a particular organization. Now, one of the things I always note is that a lot of times we don't think about the onboarding process and the leaving process and this acculturation process in terms of businesses, but we as humans now in the U.S. change careers on average seven times throughout our working life. That's a lot of times to change careers when just 50 years ago the average would be two or three. So we go through this acculturation process pretty regularly, and this is also the case for those that maybe work at temporary labor agencies or work contract labor. There's a lot of acculturation that goes on, and it can be a pretty rapid process in some cases. If you're working for a temporary hiring agency, you might just be working at a place for a couple of weeks before you jump out of that role and have to jump into a new one. And so these four steps are important to keep in mind the next time you change roles within an organization or even jumping from organization to organization. All right, just a quick reminder once again as we look ahead, Thursday, February 15th, Discussion board post is due the initial one by 11.59 p.m. Your response post is due by Sunday, February 18th at 11.59 p.m. Next week, we'll be talking about group communication. We'll have topic check number four and reflection paper number two due at the end of the week. Those are on February 25th. So kind of put that on your calendar, on your radar, so to speak. There's a couple of assignments due, not this week, but next week. This week, once again, just that in-class quiz on Tuesday and the discussion board post and response. That's it. All right. I appreciate you checking out this supplemental lecture. I hope everyone has a great week and I'll hit you with another supplemental lecture about seven days from now.